Well, good morning, church, again. Good morning to those of you in-house and those of you who are in your house. We're grateful that you're here worshiping with us. I want to thank you for inviting me back. It's been a year. Uh, it's good to be back again. Um, um, it's interesting because last year when we had our Encounters with Jesus series, I preached on the little guy. So this time, when we got to our list, uh, one of the leaders, who's sitting in the middle back there, said, I, I presume you're going to speak on Stephen. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm purposely not going to speak on Stephen. I'm going to speak on somebody else. So I started looking at other things. And for some reason, as I was praying and going through things, the Lord kept bringing me back to Stephen, back to Stephen, back to Stephen. I said, all right, obviously he has something in mind that I don't have in mind. So I'll go with it. So here I am talking about Stephen. We have a lot in common, but not that much. But um, I had trouble with it at first. I kept going, all right, this is about Stephen. We know he's the first martyr. He got stoned. There's got to be more to it than that. This can't be just a poor Stephen story. Because if that's the case, then all the lesson we're going to get out of this is, if you become a Christian, and if you preach the word, you're going to get killed. Sign me up, right? I mean, that's not the way it is. So I started praying, Lord, there's got to be more to this. What's the point of this, this story? And all of a sudden, I heard, I started playing this song in my head, the one, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you. And I woke up the next morning, and I had this aha moment. I went down, I told my wife, aha, I got it, I know the point. It's not about Stephen, it's about others that we're going to get into right now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I guess, when Derek preached, he preached about that some of these encounters have good endings, some of them have bad endings. This, we're going to see, has both. It has an unhappy ending and it has a happy ending. Um, of all the Bible heroes we know of, there are many, of course, in the Bible. There's Peter, there's Paul. All Stephen's one of the minor ones. Yet his life parallels and mirrors Christ's life probably more than any others that we have looked at. And we're going to see that. Um, his, his attitude, his demeanor, his response to the, to the leaders... Um, they both did miraculous signs. They were both considered threats, and they were accused of blasphemy. Uh, their final words, were, as we'll see later, were almost identical. And they were both put to death by the very people that they came to save. Um, we're going to see that although he's a minor character, he's only mentioned in this two chapters of Acts, he had a long-lasting uh, impact on Christianity. And that's the good part. And isn't that our goal, too, to have an impact on Christianity? So that's what we want to look at. So he is the first martyr, but I think we should define martyr because we now, today, we've kind of twisted and, and that term, martyr. If my wife says, would you like to go to the mall with me? I want to do some shopping. I go, no, but fine, I'll go if that's what I really want. And she'll say, here we go, St. Stephen the martyr again. <laughs> but uh, that's not what a martyr is. A martyr is someone who suffers and dies because of the religious and or any other beliefs. And we, we just throw the word term martyr around for anyone who's just doing something a little uncomfortable. But this is, this is totally different. So let's get a little bit of the backstory about Stephen. We're going back to Acts 6 when 
The number of disciples was growing tremendously. The apostles couldn't keep up. So they said, we're going to have to appoint some deacons, seven to be exact. So they start picking out names. I'm sure they had a long list and they narrowed it down however they did it and they came up with seven names. And if you notice the way they did it, Stephen stands out. They mention, here are the lists of deacons. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then the other guys. And that's kind of how they did it. He's singled out, and the others are just named. There's got to be a reason for that. And we know why the deacons were chosen. They were chosen to be servants, to, to physically do what the apostles couldn't do. And that was to minister uh, because of the, the, the complaints that they were getting from uh, some of the widows that they were supposed to be taking care of. And Stephen would have been probably a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was a Greek Jew. His name would have been Stephanos. And I can relate to that because I'm of Greek Jew heritage. That My grandfather was a Greek Jew. So I can relate to that. So, But being that, he could minister to not only to the Jewish race, but he could also minister to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. So he had something uh, on top of that. And obviously, he went above and beyond deaconly duties because he did miraculous signs and miraculous wonders. Um, he didn't have to. That was kind of out of his boundaries, out of his job description. But he had a gift, and he wanted to use it. So he did. But, and we'll find out it wasn't really appreciated. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And thankfully, it's up on the board because I didn't have an NASB Bible. So thank you, Ryan. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs from among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council stared at him, and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel." A lot going on in there. Let's look at, let's start at the beginning. The synagogue of freemen, freedmen, who were they? They were past prisoners of Rome who were set free and allowed to open their own um, community synagogues, if you will. So they were, they, were, they were their own local synagogue and their own officials. And it says they argued with Stephen. Now, what would they have to argue with him about? Probably as leaders and as members of the body, they were seeing him using gifts that he maybe shouldn't have been using, they, according to them. He was a real threat to them. He wasn't sticking to what his job was. He was usurping their, their authority in a way, and it made them look bad, just like with the Sanhedrin. Um, thinking of using spiritual gifts and how that comes to us here today. Um, I have to tell you, I'm nervous as all get out standing up here. And I thought, you know what? I'm not a gifted speaker like PJ is or like Dennis or Tim, but the Lord placed something on my heart that needs to go out. So we all need to use our spiritual gifts. 
And we tend to think, and I'm thinking what they thought is that Stephen was in competition with them. But our spiritual gifts aren't competitions with each other. They are to coordinate with each other and to edify the body and to, to make things happen in the church. So I think we need to look at things a little differently. And we're going to be hearing in a not-too-distant future, if I'm correct, about spiritual gifts. So we need to, we need to be using them and, and do like him. Step out and not be afraid because I might be a threat or it's not what I'm supposed to do. But step out and do it. In verses 11 and 13, they talked about um, bringing these people who brought up these accusations against Stephen. And I'm thinking, these are leaders of the church, followers of the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Obviously, they forgot the ninth one, which is what? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they were willing to stretch out and let evil take over and sin by bringing someone forth just so that they could make a point, just so that they could put Stephen in his place, or so they thought so. They were desperate enough to disregard the word before them to try to get rid of somebody that they thought was a threat. And then we get to verse 15. I love this part. And it talks about he, was, he was, had the face of an angel. And we, we think, what does that mean? And I thought, it was almost, we picture radiating, a radiating glow, right? In other portions of the Bible, we've seen uh, angels who are radiating and glows. In, in uh, Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was glowing. And it says that he wasn't even aware that he was radiant because he had met with the Lord. Um, in Matthew 17, when at the transfiguration, when Jesus lit up, they said his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. And here's Stephen standing before him, and they're saying the same thing about him. He had the face of an angel. It's almost as if God was saying, look at this guy. He's, don't buy those accusations. He's my messenger. He's trying to tell you something, and you're not listening to it. They were all messengers. Moses was a messenger. Eli, um, not Elijah. Sorry, Moses was a messenger. Uh, Jesus, of course, was a messenger, and all the angels are messengers. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody with that awe of light. I know I haven't, but boy, I sure would like to. All right, then we go into Acts chapter 7. We're not going to put it up. We're not going to read it. It's 1 through 53. This is basically his whole speech. It's too long to read, but we're going to go through it a little bit. But verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? So here he is. He's on trial. He's before the Sanhedrin, they're, they're baiting him, they're asking him the question, is this so? This is where I think Stephen made his first mistake, because if I was him, I would have been yelling and screaming and saying, it's a lie, it's false, that guy's not telling the truth, and here's why. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't address the question, he doesn't even answer the question. He's accused, he's given every opportunity to defend himself and yet he's calm. He has a calm demeanor. He's got this face like an angel. I can almost see him smiling at them. And he says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And what he does right then and there is he gives a lengthy speech. It's the longest speech, actually, in the book of Acts. It's 50 verses. And remember, he didn't have his Bible in hand. He wasn't carrying the Torah. This was off the top of his head, came right out of his heart which should have shown them right away that he knew the word, he knew the laws. 
He didn't waver from them. But he goes and he goes on and on and on. He has it in memory. So he doesn't do it at all. Um, why didn't he defend himself? Well, he, first of all, he probably didn't know he was going to get killed. I don't think. I mean, look at the past uh, disciples and apostles in Acts. Yes, they were commanded not to do to, to preach. They were arrested. They were flogged. Nobody was killed. So I don't think he thought he was killed. But I got a reason to believe that even if he thought he was killed, he probably would have given the same speech because he was filled with the Holy Spirit at this point. And he, was, he, still, he goes into a history lesson. He starts talking history. And we're going to look at that. He starts off with the fathers of faith. He starts off with Abraham. And I encourage you to go back and read this. Like I said, it's way too long to put up on board. But he talks about Abraham, the father of all of Israel, and how God told him, leave your home, go out to the place I tell you to go. And what Abraham did was he followed. He just went and he did it. He went to a foreign land where he met again with God and God made all kinds of promises and covenants to him. He didn't even have the land at that point, but God made promises. This is what's going to happen to you and your descendants. But he also informed them that his descendants were going to reject. They were going to reject his laws. They were going to be put into exile. Um... He also gave them a covenant of circumcision, which we're going to talk about later, the importance of it. And it was still observed during Stephen's time. It was still a law they were following, but it was an empty law. It was a a ritual that they were doing. They They were putting their faith more in their religiosity than they were putting in God's true nature. They weren't really following his laws the way they should have. They turned their relationship with God into false standards of holiness and rituals and performances and they kind of lost track of what God really wanted them to do. So he talks about Abraham, the father of all Israel, leaving his home, meeting with God, ministering in a foreign land and then he transfers to Joseph. Joseph obviously being one of Abraham's descendants. Abraham, his son was Isaac, Isaac's son was Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons were the patriarchs of the church one of them being Joseph. Joseph was God's chosen one, but his brothers rejected him. They didn't, they didn't like his status. They didn't like where he was going. So what did they do? They sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And everybody knows the story. He became a high authority in Egypt, and he was the one who ultimately ended up saving his own family and the people in that foreign land as well. Then he goes to Moses, and he really has to stick close to Moses because, like I said, they're accusing him of going against Moses, of speaking against Moses, of not following Moses' laws. And these are the guys who are supposedly enforcing those laws. So just at the time when God was about to, um, his promise was going to come to pass to Abraham, the disciples are growing, they're growing numerous in numbers, there's many of them, and there's a new king in Egypt who is not so friendly to the uh, Israelites, puts them into bondage, just like was predicted, and they become enslaved. And then everybody knows Moses' story. We saw, the, we saw the movie. And he is taken in and raised as an Egyptian, finds out he is indeed a, an Israelite, a Hebrew, goes back to try to save them. Uh, we know the incident where he actually killed an Egyptian who was uh, torturing or beating an Israelite. And the Israelites actually turned against him at that point. 
and say, what, are you going to kill us too? Get out of here. So he runs. He, goes to, he gets called to a foreign land just as well as uh, Abraham and Joseph did. And God meets with him again, and we know what happens. He goes up into the, um, to the Mount Sinai. He gets the commandments. And while he's up there, what's happening? The people are down there turning their backs on Moses and God again, making their own idol. They again turn their back on the prophets and against God. And Stephen is bringing this history lesson to the Sanhedrin to say, look what your, what your ancestors have done. They've all turned against the prophets. They've all turned against God. But look what they did. They all ministered to people outside their home. So I think in a way he was telling them, we don't need to be locked in this room and preach only and only believe that's saved in this room. And I think we need to look at that too. The people outside this church don't really care what's going on in here. They don't. So we can't just open the doors and say they're going to come in here because they're thirsty or they're hungry. It's not necessarily going to happen. We have to go out there. We have to become like exiles and go out into this community. We've talked about it. We've heard the incident that Tim and and Ben had downtown and last week when they met downtown. We've got to go outside these doors. And I think it's a little uncomfortable for us. But I think it's something we're going to need to look at as a, as a church coming down the line as things change. So Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, taken out of their homes, they all were rejected in some form or another, and yet they were still those who saved those around them. God's salvation, he was telling them, isn't limited to the Jews. It's, it's open for everybody. All right, and... He's also accused of speaking against the temple in verses 44 through 50. Uh, Jews at this time believed that, like I, I talked about before, that their way of worshiping him in a certain way, in a certain place, being the temple, was the way it was supposed to be, because that's what Moses did. Moses built the temple the way God told them to build it. And that's true. And that was passed on through the generations. David decided he was going to build his great temple for God to live in, and he didn't do it, but Solomon did. But then came, um, then we realized that uh, God does not live in a box. God doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't. He's all around, and to say he does is neglecting who God is. His his real nature is that he can't be contained. So he's trying to get this across to them too. Finally, verses, we're going to read verses 51 through 53. So he's just given them this great history lesson, trying to get them to hear what he's actually saying. And then, finally, we think, all right, now Stephen's got it. He's on his game. Here he goes. He's going to let him have it. You men, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And you now become betrayers and murderers of him you were who received the law ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. All right, so good. He's ready to go. But he's still not defending himself, is he? He's still clinging to what he was started to say, he is actually now turning it on them. 
He's saying, I'm the one accused, but am I the one on trial, or are you the guys who should really be on trial here? Suddenly he goes not from the defensive but to the offensive. He starts off saying, calling them uncircumcised in heart. Um, circumcision, as we said before, was a covenant between God and man. It's a practice they were still doing at this point. It's a practice they still do today. But what he was telling them was, you people are not living up to the covenant of God. You're not living up to the laws the way you say you are. They really weren't covenant-bound. They were straying. He's pointing out that they're failing to obey the laws at all, the laws that they are priding themselves and trying to get everyone else to follow. And isn't that what Jesus was accused of as well? He was, wasn't, I mean, what he accused the Sanhedrin of, sorry. He accused them as well, right? He turned it back on them. You are the blasphemous ones, not me. They didn't see who he was. They couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And I think that's what really started this whole thing with Stephen, is they couldn't, they were horrified to think that someone could say Jesus was the Messiah. When in fact, what they saw him was as he was a criminal who was killed, and he's out of our hands. And now they've got Another guy doing the same thing, saying the same things right before them. They were resisting God's ways and his truth, denying and even killing the prophets. And he's saying, you guys did the same thing to Christ, who was our Savior. He was really letting them know that throughout history, even though it seemed that God's plans were changing, they weren't really changing God's plan is always the same, but when opposition gets in the way, God finds another way to get back to his plan and go around it. So we need to be real careful that we don't step in his way in this church as well. And I'm not, I'm not a judge and jury up here accusing anyone. Believe me, I'm, I'm just the same as all of us. But we keep talking about the Holy Spirit leaning in on us here, leaning in on us here. But are we really opening up and letting him lean in are our hearts really open to what he wants us to do? And I think we need to, to really look at that carefully. In these verses, he's on, a def- he's on the offensive, but he's not condemning them. He's actually giving them hope. He's trying to show them that there is a better way. There's a new life, that they don't have to live in sin and continue the way they're going, that they need to open their hearts to Christ. His words obviously convicted them and offended them at the same time. But when you think of it, he did everything right. He didn't defend himself. He, he lashed out with the word, with the truth, with the Holy Spirit behind him. And for all we know, some of them got it there, but obviously some of them didn't. And it made me think of in 2 Timothy 4, um, verse 2. When Paul is giving his charge to Timothy and he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And I thought, isn't that just what Stephen did? He used the word carefully. He used it to rebuke them. He used it to encourage them. He was calm. He was patient. But he made his point pretty clear. Why is it that they didn't get it? They should have. To me, that would have been like a, oh, wow, moment. He, he makes a lot of sense here. We did the wrong thing. We better repent. That wasn't it. There's, a, there's a, too much of the past in them that they can't let this go. 
So I'd like to take a look at Hebrews 8, verse 10, if we could. This is the covenant which I will, this is the Lord speaking, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this was taken from Jeremiah during his time um, when God made the statement that the old covenant really wasn't working anymore. The people turned against him, so he was going to come up with a new covenant. And there was going to be a new, a new high priest who was the head of this new covenant, and that, of course, was going to be Christ. The people knew it. The problem is they knew in their minds what the laws were, but they didn't know it in their hearts. They were clinging to the old ways. They weren't letting go of that. And this tends to be our problem too. I've heard, and we've all heard, um, in this church and in other churches I've been to, as we progress and try to move on, people saying, you know what? If we went back to what we did back here, that worked, that really worked well. Let's do that again. Is that really letting the Lord work or is that saying that worked then? It might not work now. Are we going to be the opposition to God if we step in and say, we're going to go back to doing it this way? Or we're going to try this or we're going to try that? Or here's a program I think might work. Here's a program I think might work. Or are we just going to sit back and say, Lord, what do you want to do here? We're open to it. That's, that's a tough thing to do. That's one of the reasons I had trouble with this message in the beginning because I wasn't opening myself to God. I was saying, I got the word in front of me. I can do this. I know what I have to do. No, I didn't know what I had to do. I had to open my heart to God and say, what do you want me to say? And I have to tell you, when, before I came in here this morning, I told my wife, I said, she said, how do you feel? I said, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and she said, no, no, you're going to be fine. She said, and I don't want to build him up anymore, but... She said, nobody expects you to be PJ, don't worry. <laughs> so, and you're not getting PJ. But um, Then I, 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 going back to um, Timothy again, I thought, why did they miss it? 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5 says, The time will come when men, men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their teaching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry. He was talking to Timothy, but he's talking to us as well. He was talking to Stephen. This is where we are today. You know, I'm... I don't get into politics. I don't get into a lot of that stuff. I've gotten off of Facebook recently because I've been on Facebook mainly as a spy. I, don't, I never posted things, but I always like to see what other people are putting on. And I got to the point where I was so horrified and shocked by some of the things I see people putting on, stating it's fact, when indeed it isn't fact. It's a fact according to John Smith or somebody else, but it's not real fact. And some of those people are people I know and love from this church and other churches I've been to. And I'd actually approached one brother on that and I got a little, fee, a little pushback, quite a bit of pushback. And I spoke to Pastor Dennis about it and he said, you got to be careful what you do and how you say it. And I, I agreed. That's not the, the place to start posting stuff and saying what's what. So I got off Facebook and I'm, I didn't think I had ADD, but I'm going off somewhere. How'd that happen? 
But, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. But I think we need to be really careful that we don't let ourselves get pushed aside, pulled aside by myths and false doctrines. Let's stick to the word, the truth. Um, all right, let's get back to task. If we could read verses 54 through 59, please. All right, so they're, they've just heard his speech. They're horrified by it. And here's their result. Now, when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Wow. <clears throat> Powerful stuff. To me, one of the things that stood out here was he, he looked up and he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And other times in the Bible, when we see that, we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Interesting, I thought that's an interesting thing. And it may be just a theory, but I thought, could it be that he was standing in defense, like, push, like urging Stephen on? Could it be that maybe he was standing to say, I'm ready to welcome you into my loving arms? That he was, a, he was ready to take action? He was getting ready, that's what I think. He all, this is also the first time he talks, uh, in one of the translations it says, he sees someone like the Son of Man. That's the only time other than Jesus that the term Son of Man is used in the New Testament. That's just a little aside. And then he utters those final words that Christ said just on the same, sorry, the same words that Christ said on the cross when he said, I'm commending myself into your spirit and Father, forgive them. Wow. Just like Jesus, Stephen was falsely accused. He didn't deserve the accusation against him. If anyone had the right to be offended, it was him. If anybody had the right to lash out in anger, it was him. But he didn't. Neither one of them defended themselves, neither Christ nor Stephen. It was said of Jesus that he was led to the, like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. That's from Isaiah 53. Stephen spoke out, but he didn't speak out in anger or with defense, but with, with truth and with concern for those people around him. He was trying to save those people who were about to cut his life short. And he asked them to forgive them, and he dies. And he becomes the first martyr in the Bible. Wow, isn't that great for him? It's great for us, though, isn't it? And, you know, for all we know, his speech could have even gone on longer. Maybe he had more in his mind, but it was cut short by the, by the mob. He was put to death physically, but there was those left behind who may have been dead the rest of their lives spiritually. We don't know. He was really concerned. Are we concerned? Mike talked earlier about the state of the world right now. <clears throat> it's bad. And we know it. And there's a lot of people saying, this is the end times. And I'm not an end timer, per se. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. 
But what it tells me is that as a church, we need to do something a little differently. We need to be a little more concerned with the people who are out there who aren't getting it, who are ready to take on that mob mentality and say, your Jesus isn't the, isn't the Savior. There's got to be something better or something different. I think we need to look at that. So where's the happy ending? This is not a happy ending. I think the happy ending is that one thing, um, we see that tragedy or hardship is sometimes part of God's plan. God knew it was happening to Stephen. He knew it was going to happen. And yet he allowed it to happen and it was part of the plan. And the full impact of Stephen's ministry, short as it was, wasn't felt by him. But look what it did. His execution fueled a greater anger and hatred for the church by Saul. And what did that do? It scattered all the apostles and disciples. It made them scatter into exile, into different lands. And what did that do? It gave us a happy ending because it started proclaiming the word of God in foreign lands. It was the spread of Christianity. It was Christ saying, take it to all the ends of the earth. And it was this act of evil and hatred that started Christianity around the world. That's a happy ending. He was just a page in God's plan. So what does this all mean for us? Well, first of all, it should show us from Stephen's point of view that the Holy Spirit will equip us to do things we don't think we could possibly do on our own. Stephen had known what was going to happen to him. I don't think he, he would have done that, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was obvious he was glowing. He spoke, out, he spoke out boldly for his faith without fear of what might have happened to him because the Holy Spirit equips us to do things we don't think we can do. We don't think we can go downtown and minister to people who are undesirable, as we put them. But the Holy Spirit can give us what we need. I didn't think I could stand up here this morning, but the Holy Spirit gives me what we need. Then we look at, um, that's from Stephen's perspective. We need to, to learn to follow God's plan. But what do we learn from the mob's mentality? Well, we do, we can learn that um, we, can, we, like them, can fail to recognize God in our midst. We need to learn so that we have to move outside the box and reach outside our comfort zone, not to cling to our present ways or go back to past ways, but to use history to teach us lessons and to show us that God has plans for us and that he's, he's trying to move on. Sometimes we get kind of preoccupied with things we have to forget, and we forget that God has a future in store for us. We don't know what that future is for this church, whether this church closes tomorrow or next week or 100 years from now. All we know is he has a plan and we want to be part of it. We can't think that what we're doing here is the be-all and end-all of the way God wants it done. It's not. <clears throat> so what do we need to do? We need to learn how to face trials and adversaries, and we need to scatter. It's time for us to scatter, to go out there and preach the word to people who need it. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit. I want a couple of challenges I'd like to put out there. How many risks do we take in being Jesus' followers? We don't face flogging or imprisonment or death yet. Yet. Right now, our biggest fear is they won't like me. They'll turn away from me. He'll yell at me. Big deal. But it still scares us. Are we willing to die for Jesus 
Or are we even willing to live for him? And I'd like to end with one last quote that I found that I can't find out who said it. It was, it was there. But it really fit in good. It is far better to die like Stephen under the hail of rocks crushing our skulls and be welcomed into heaven by a risen Lord Jesus than to die peacefully in the midst of worldly comforts, surrounded by family, but then here, depart from me, I never need you. Yeah, ouch. We learn a lot from Stephen. It's not about, oh, poor Stephen. It's about, oh, poor us, if we don't get it. We're going to go into communion now. Let's, and pastor's going to lead it. Let's not go into it like a, an empty ritual that we do all the time. Can we close in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking through me. People didn't come to hear me today. They came to hear from you. And I'm praying that what you spoke through me was edifying and brought glory to you and you alone. Boy, we need to learn, Lord. We have a lot to learn. But we thank you that you give us your spirit. And we pray continually and more openly that you would send your spirit down, Lord, and fill us and fill this place and have your way and show us what we need to do. Guide us and protect us, Lord, as you always do. We lay ourselves at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve, thanks for a good word today. Amen. Yeah, I appreciated it. Good job. My wheels were going around, I have to admit, going around. And I apologize for the infection of ADD. May you be healed in the next week. I don't know if your father did this, but I named my son Stephen because of Stephen and the scripture. And uh, being a bit of an enthusiast for Jesus in my early days before I was old and moldy like I am now, uh, I really did believe and did want and still do. I would rather have uh, my kids die in kingdom work than be living the dream and be out of his will. What's the point if we really believe? And so I was thinking about that. And one of the takeaways from our brother's message today is the Holy Spirit's aid. And uh, Stephen stood up and without a doubt experienced dying grace. I don't know about you, but I'm banking on that. I'm banking on the day that I am going home, that God is going to give me the grace to die in a way that glorifies him whatever the circumstances might be. So um, I thought about Stephen, and I was using that as a launch point for our communion today. And uh, may I just say this, if you're in the room today and uh, you're not sure that you're going to see him, his face, when you walk through the door of death, you really need to settle that issue. What's the point in coming into a church and not have that issue settled? That's why we're here that's why God has still left us here on the planet. Everybody in the room say hi. Hi, we're here. If we're believers, he's left us here to help other people know. Otherwise, when you get saved, you could have just taken you home. Poof, wouldn't that have been something? Back when I heard Billy Graham on television, I went down into my room in the basement where I belonged. In the basement. And I began to pray the only way I knew how to pray, which was, show me who you are and I'll do anything you ask. Poof, I would have been dead. Poof, 
I would have gone into the presence of God, except God has reasons for leaving us here. Right? We have a reason. You've got a reason. If you're still here, he's got a reason that you're still here. And God will grant us dying grace. I hope that you will settle that issue if you haven't already. I'm going to just uh, read two things quickly because I'm not here. Uh, because uh, this came to my mind immediately. Uh, two, uh, two, actually, two songs. We're, we're going to close with a song today, and I think it's right to worship our Savior. Amen? Amen. There's an old song we're not going to sing. The Son of God Goes Forth to War. I thought Stephen's story fits. In fact, Stephen's story helped um, inspire the words of this song, Reginald Heber, 1812. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? Who best can drink his cup of woe triumphant over pain? Who patient bears his cross below? I need to work on that. How about you? Who patient bears his cross below? He follows in his train. You do know Christmas is coming. I'm not giving you a time, you know, like, I better get shopping already. It's too early for that, even though stores shove it on you so early. Christmas is coming. I never forget that one of the Christian writers that I read made it clear that Christmas, the day of Jesus' birth, was a declaration of war. He was declaring war on the enemy's kingdom. He was going to send liberation to people who were taken captive by the enemy. Some of them are sitting in this room today, liberated, right? We escaped the concentration camp of Satan by the mercy of God. I'm glad somebody believes it. All right. Here's the second verse of that song. That martyr first, whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. He didn't call on him to get him out of the stoning, which of course, was a method of execution. He called on him to save. He trusted his Savior, receive my spirit. Like him with pardon on his tongue, in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong. Who follows in his train? Being like his master, Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For you have been called for this purpose, brothers and sisters. Listen, Peter wrote this to us. You understand? I know it's old stuff. It's written to us. You were called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so Stephen, the character we heard about today, did exactly that as he exited this life. I think you're completely right. You have it on theological authority, me, that I believe Jesus stood up to receive the first martyr of the church, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
I see him standing. Can you imagine? As he says, receive my spirit. And then, as he's losing life, he knows he's fading, the last thing he does is pray for them. Lord, do not hold this against them. I have to believe God heard that request, his dying grace request. And I'll bet some of those uh, synagogue of the freedmen people ended up born again and in the kingdom. We'll find out when we get there. And if I'm wrong, you can all come meet me up there. If you can find me, I'll be pretty busy. And say, you were wrong. There weren't any. But I think I'll be right. I'm just being smart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us. Thank you that you led the way. You were reviled. You did not revile in return. You committed no sin. There was no deceit in your mouth. Lord, you lived the perfect law-fulfilling life so that we could be forgiven forever. Lord, we think about the opposition that our brother Steve talked about today. The resistance. It's going to cost me something to follow Jesus. It's free to get the gift, but it costs something to follow him. You have to give up being right. You have to give up being a rebel. You have to give up your idols. All the stuff that you put ahead of the living God to follow Jesus. But he instantly gives you the gift of eternal life. Lord, he just calls us to follow. Lord, we thank you that you provided the model and we celebrated one of those outstanding disciples who followed in his model's footsteps as he gave up his life. Some of us were speaking to each other this morning earlier that we are all going to die. That's a given. The question is how and where will we go? Lord, thank you that what we are celebrating today was purposely put in place by you, Master Jesus. Do this, you said. Do this. You told us to do a whole lot of things, some of which we ignore, and we ought to be ashamed. But, Lord, you told us to do this in remembrance of you, and so today we are doing this in remembrance of you. You told us to do it. Here we are doing it remembering that we only have life eternal because you obeyed all the way to the cross. And your shed blood has provided cleansing from our iniquities. And so we worship you today. We're taking a moment here at the end of this time where we've been edified from the word and where we've worshiped you with song. We're taking a moment to remember what you did for us, Lord Jesus. You gave your body and shed your blood that we might have life eternal. So, Lord, receive our praises today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread first, and in obedience to his command, let's partake. And then let's be silent for a moment and just ponder, where am I at in my obedience, in my listening to the Holy Spirit? You know that the command in Scripture... Before we eat, the command in scripture, let a man examine himself, is not for the non-believer. It's a meaningless thing. If you don't know Jesus, this doesn't mean anything really. It's okay, you're not going to be struck down if you partake. That command is for believers who are telling God to get lost. 
believers who are telling God to get lost. Those are the ones who ought to be nervous. That's why he says examine. Let's ponder quietly for a moment. So, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you now for the giving of your Son. You so loved the world. You so loved this broken, rebellious, stubborn humanity. Made in your image, on the one hand beautiful, and on the other hand incredibly ugly. But you loved us and provided a means of redemption. That whosoever will, whosoever will make the choice, whosoever will listen to the Spirit and not stiffen the neck and open their heart to follow Jesus, whosoever will may come. Whoever believes in his son, Jesus, might have eternal life. We're grateful. I'm thankful, God, for the gathering of your saints, those who might be watching and those who have physically come to manifest their, their desire to be marked as worshipers today, taking time out of the world, doing what is odd to a people who don't even believe there's a God anymore. Thank you for that. And bless their obedience, Lord. Receive our worship and our thanks as we praise you for the giving of your blood, which washes us, cleanses us, Not by magic, but because when Jesus died, he conquered the enemy. The declaration of war was established, and Satan was defeated, and his hold on man was broken for anyone who will apply it to their soul. We bless your name. In the great name of Jesus, we celebrate, and all of God's people said, So carefully open your cup. And let's partake together as we announce what we believe. There is a king, right? To the king and to his kingdom, there is a king. Amen. And let's stand together and sing this song to the Lord.
Get a name for yourself in this place, in the great name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for your angels to accompany your people. Protect us through today, whatever comes. And we'll thank you in the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you.